Hi, I'm Anna Conchar. I work two days a week and run a multi-million dollar online business. I also have my MBA and I am a mom, foodie, and avid traveler. I started this show to teach you how to monetize the skills, knowledge, and passions you already have so you can put life first instead of work. Making money doesn't have to be hard or complicated or require you to grind 24-7 when you focus on the right things, and that's exactly what I'm going to teach you. So if you're ready to have more time, money, and energy to do what makes you happy and really live life, you are in the right place. Let's build your million-dollar side hustle. friends welcome back to the your million dollar side hustle podcast i am so thrilled to chat about the topic of today all the legal things that you need to know for your online business with the autumn void of the awb law firm welcome autumn oh thank you so much anna i'm really delighted to talk with you today so before we dive into all of the legal stuff can you share with me kind of a little bit about your background and how you got into this online business space world? Yes. I like to say I kind of fell into it totally by accident. <laughs> I did not have some grand plan. I've been a lawyer now almost 20 years, and I had a very normal, boring career path. I went to law school. I worked for a judge. That's what brought me to Chattanooga. We were chatting earlier that you got to come through our beautiful city. So typically, right out of law school, if you want to be a litigator, you want to go to court and do all that stuff. Working for a judge is a great experience. So I did that. That's what I thought I wanted to do. And I came to Chattanooga just for two years. I am still here almost 20 years later. <laughs> I had a job in Nashville. That was my that was my grand plan. But I fell in love with the city. So I'm still here. So I worked for a small law firm. I mean, a, like a regional law firm here, just doing general litigation. But what I really wanted to do was copyright law. I have, I was a theater nerd growing up. I'm a singer. Like I just always thought that it was so interesting, but it will not shock you to learn that there is not a lot of copyright in Chattanooga. <laughs> we have a lot of industry. We have a lot of manufacturing. Now we have a lot of logistics, but like not a lot of entertainment or content creation. But I got really lucky because a couple of years into my career, there was a law firm based in Colorado that wanted to bring a lawsuit in Chattanooga for one of their clients and they needed what they call local counsel. So just like a local lawyer to help them you know, tell them what to do and where to go and all of that. And the case was in front of the judge that I had worked for. So they did a little research and found out that I had worked for him, but I was like outside of my time that I couldn't appear in front of him. Uh, so I was hired by them and it was a copyright case for a local painter. So I got to know them. I got to work on that case. It was so much fun. And I got to know those lawyers and they eventually asked me to come join their firm. So I got to stay in Chattanooga and I was working remotely. This was in 2008. Mm. So like, just think back, like we have Zoom, we used Skype, we used AOL Instant Messenger because <laughs> like there was no Slack, like none of these things I love that. Yeah. Especially in legal, like legal is always 20 years behind everything. Yes. So that was a total dream job for me. Like I got to do exactly what I've been hoping to do. Uh, it was very glamorous. Like I was going to New York a couple times a year for depositions, these big fancy offices and you see Broadway shows on, in my downtime. It was just, it was really wonderful. And I learned a lot. It was a small firm and we worked mostly with photographers and other kind of visual artists. So that was just really cool. It was very fun. But I now have three kids at the time. I had two kids, twins in 2011. So that kind of like turned my world upside down a little bit, although they were very much wanted. <laughs> just was 
kind of bananas. So I kept working at that firm for several years and actually it was fine until they started getting older. Like it was almost easier when they were babies Mm -hmm. because they didn't notice if I was gone or that I was working like basically Mm -hmm. around the clock. I was regularly working 60 hours a week, like sometimes Mm -hmm. closer to 80, just depended. So my husband is wonderful. He's also an entrepreneur. He is a construction consultant. So he basically sat me down one day. We were preparing for my first trial with that firm, which was going to be in Philadelphia. So I was going back and forth to Philadelphia. And he was like, this is not working. <laughs> like, you cannot keep working like this. Yeah. I was yelling at everybody. You know, I would try and get the kids to bed as soon as I could because I needed to go back to work after they went to sleep. It was just, it was pretty miserable. And like, I knew I was miserable, but I kept thinking it would get better. I kept thinking if I can just get through this or if I can just get to that next thing, it'll get better. But he really encouraged me and wanted to finish that trial because it was a great experience and I really liked the client and I didn't want to let her down. But after that trial, I like took some hard thinking time and literally like we went to the beach for a week for my birthday and I just sat outside and I journaled. It was like very woo. <laughs> Do I even want to be a lawyer anymore? And I applied for a bunch of jobs that I didn't get that I really didn't want. And eventually like came around to the idea of starting my own law firm. So that was a long way of saying I started my own firm like very much by accident. And I would have told you, Anna, that I do not have an entrepreneurial bone in my body. Like it's not something I ever imagined, but I felt like I looked around and there was really nothing else I wanted to do. I knew I didn't want to go back to a big law firm. Mm -hmm. I had gotten very spoiled working remotely and that was not really a thing like during this time. It was, this was 2015. And so then I didn't know anything about like the business side of running business. Mm -hmm. I knew everything about how to be a lawyer. I was pretty good at that. But so I was listening. I mean, I've always been a big podcast listener. But so I was listening to like Amy Porterfield's podcast and Pat Flynn and all of these like online business ed- educators. And most of them had Facebook groups. So I would like go in the Facebook groups. And I literally, this was for my own education. Like I did not have some genius marketing. Like this is how I'm going to build my firm. But I would just ask questions. And then I noticed that people were asking legal questions. And like, I'm not kidding when I say there were no other lawyers in these groups. Like I was the only one. So, you know, I did what now I tell lots of people to do, which is I just showed up and I was helpful and people started asking me to help them on projects and, you know, brick by brick, um, you know, I made uh, people were happy. And so then they would refer their friends and it just grew from there. Amazing. That's phenomenal. So I don't I did not tell you this before we started chatting for the podcast, but my husband is actually an attorney. Oh, God. Uh, So I am like, he left his job a little over a year ago because he we were totally dealing with what you were talking about, which it's like, you know, the literally working nonstop, the getting pings. They had Slack now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's like around the clock. Like, he literally one night just put one of our girls to bed. And in the like 20 minutes of reading her book and putting her down, he came back to like 60 Slack messages and was like, I can't do this anymore. Yeah. So totally understand that. Yes. Amazing. He's right now he's, we call him our, he's like, you know, chief dad officer slash I love it. personal chef because he loves cooking, but I don't think he'll end up going back into law at all because yeah, it, 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 it is a, a tough job. So yeah. congratulations. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. It's been a lot happier around here since that has all happened. So amazing. Okay. Well, going back to your business, cause that's what we're really here to talk about. Yeah. So tell me, like you started this in 2015, right? You started seeing these questions. What are the biggest questions or the most frequent questions that you get from online entrepreneurs like course creators and coaches when it comes to legal? And 
specifically, like, what do we need to know about when we're first getting started? Because I think like, yeah, when we're first starting our businesses, we're super overwhelmed. I was lucky enough that I had my husband who's not an online business, you know, attorney, but he was a corporate attorney. So at least like he had understood some of the business stuff. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, let's dive into that because I know that there are so many questions. So what are the top yeah. questions that you get and kind of what are the main things that we need to know when we're first starting it? Yeah. So it's funny the answers to those are different. So I would say the most questions that I get, and yes. I was just at a conference last week, I probably got 75 questions about trademarks, which is fun. And I can talk about that all day. But mm -hmm. if you are just starting or even really if you're in your first couple of years and you're less than six figures income, I would say like, put that out of your brain. <laughs> you do not need to worry about that yet, which is great because trademarks are expensive and a lot of work to enforce. I don't know if you own any trademark res registrations, Anna, but it's a whole process. It's a whole thing. Uh, it's a yes. whole thing. <laughs> yes. But so what I would say the number one most important thing as you're getting started is not sexy. It's boring. It is contracts. Mm -hmm. uh, but that is absolutely like the most basic, most important foundational. If you do nothing else, <laughs> you take nothing else from our conversation today. Mm -hmm. It is however you're making money. And that can look different for all of your different listeners, making sure that you have a contract with your customer or your client or your bot, your purchaser. Okay. I would say unless you have a physical product and then it's a little different. But most of your listeners, I think, are in kind of the information education space. Yes. So we say, you know, protect your moneymaker putting a really clear contract so that you know what you're supposed to do. The buyer knows what they're getting. Clear yep. payment terms, clear expectations is really the goal with a contract. So I have always used contracts when I've done like one-on-one -on -one services, right? Like I sign them, they sign them. It's like an actual contract. But when you're selling courses and memberships where you're not necessarily like sending over a DocuSign to have them, you know, actually manually put in their signature, what can you use instead as a way to protect yourself when you are selling those types of digital products? Yeah. So it is still a contract. We just call it something different. Okay. So you've probably seen terms of use, which is what we call it at my firm, or terms and conditions, which mm -hmm. usually you see them at checkout. Like you get to the payment screen and maybe it has like a little link yeah. and like a checkbox, like, please click here to accept these terms. That is, if you click on that, that is going to be, you know, our template is quite long and very thorough. It's going to have all the same things that you'd have in a one-on-one -on -one client contract, but it also has a lots of others because there's just more complexity when you've got an online course. You've got your intellectual property you want to protect. Maybe you've got a group element. You want to kind of keep people in line, make sure that they're behaving nicely the way you want them to. Yeah, there's just more, more parts and pieces when you look at an online course or an information product. Do you think that there's like a specific cutoff as far as an investment when you should be sending a contract over versus using a terms and conditions? Because I've also seen with like higher ticket coaching programs that not only do you, you know, check that mark at checkout, but then afterwards they will actually send over a contract for you to sign. Do you have some guidance on like when you should be doing that as well? Yeah. So the first thing I'll say is that the checkbox with the terms and conditions is as enforceable as a regular contract that you think about where you like sign your name at the bottom, a DocuSign or a paper. Um, there's the federal law that, so as long as you do two things, you have to give people the chance to read it before they agree. So that's mm -hmm. why they're usually linked or you might see a scroll box and they have to take some sort of affirmative action. So they have to check the box or they have to enter their initials or whatever you have them do. Mm -hmm. Click a button that says, I agree. 
So you can't have it pre-checked and you can't just have them agree to something that they only get to see afterwards, right? So as long as you do those two things, it's totally legally binding. I think why we see uh, more like actual contracts being used in those higher dollar engagements is because it gets people to actually read them. And usually with those higher dollar engagements, there's just more at risk for both sides. So the customer is paying more money. You are probably providing a higher level of service or maybe even like an in-person element or some other things, you know, it's higher touch. So I think, frankly, I think that's the reason is trying to get people to actually read, read the contract. Yes. And there's other ways you can do that. I talk a lot with my clients about like adding steps to their sales process to kind of start like telling people what they're agreeing to, even in, you know, the webinar or the sales mm-hmm. emails, you know, all kinds of things, especially the really key important things like a refund policy. But, you know, if you're not doing that, making them sign a contract is a great way to do that. And that's also why you'll see like the initial boxes, like those are not required. Really, the only reason is to make people really read, read that. It. It's like if you don't, if you skip the other pages, really look at this, please. Yes. Okay. That's really good to know. So when we're first starting, the main thing we need a contract, whether that's like an actual contract people are signing or a terms and conditions. So after that, kind of what are the next things that we need to think about as online business owners from a legal perspective? Yeah. So my philosophy, and I forgot to give my disclaimer, I am a lawyer. None of this is legal advice. I said it. And I how many times I say that on my own coaching calls. Right. Ask for legal advice and they'll ask for like tax or accounting questions. And I always say, I always have to say I'm not an attorney. I cannot give you legal advice. I am not an accountant. I cannot give you tax advice. Like I, we have to put that disclaimer so that you don't come back at me and be like, but Anna told me this. I know. P.S. I'm knocking on some wood, but I have never yes. seen like a life coach get sued for, you know, right. allegedly giving bad legal advice, but you never right. know. So I would say my general philosophy as a lawyer is that I think you should be putting legal protections in place that are proportional or, you know, equivalent to the amount of risk that you have in your business. All we do all day long as lawyers is evaluate risks and help you, you know, minimize the risk. We can't avoid them altogether. We're trying to reduce them. So the great news is when you are first starting a business, your risk is really low, especially an online business. Now, if you tell me you're starting, you know, here in Chattanooga, where I live, we have skydiving off the side of a mountain. So if you tell me, or I guess it's hang gliding. If you tell me you're starting like a business like that, where you could physically kill someone, Right. Then you need more protections. But for an online business, your risks are very low. Like if something goes wrong, it's maybe somebody doesn't like your advice or they don't like the web copy you wrote or your graphic design, you know, pretty low stakes. So the outcome of that means that we don't have to worry about a lot of these, you know, that's why I say don't worry about trademarks. Like your brand is just not that important in the beginning. What you need to be doing is getting customers and like getting practice and and getting known. So a lot of what I talk about in the beginning stages is really just kind of Trying to avoid some things that can become expensive later. So one of the big things I encourage everyone to do is don't worry about registering your trademark. But if you are creating like a catchy brand or some sort of name for your program or your product is run your own trademark search to make sure no one else is already using it. Because what you don't want is you create it and then you are selling it for three or four years and now it's huge. And now you do have your million dollar side hustle and. Someone comes out of the woodwork and is like, oh, I've actually been using that for five years and I predate you. And now, you know, I'm going to see you for trademark infringement. Yeah. So things like that, where you can just kind of avoid expensive problems are a big, that's a big one. I see the same thing about avoiding infringing someone's copyright. So 
don't grab that photo from like Unsplash or the free stock photo sites because there is stuff there that is not actually free. So just making sure you kind of get into good habits about using intellectual property the right way. And now there are so many, you know, back when I represented stock photographers, you know, it was really hard to get good photography. And so they were paid a lot. And now, I mean, it's everywhere. You can get great photos for so little money. It's very easy. So it's very easy and inexpensive to do things the right way. Those are two big ones in the beginning. I love that you have brought up trademarks multiple times because I have talked to many online business owners who are like in the infancy stage of their business and they're going through that process. And I'm like, you haven't even really figured out what your business actually is, who you're selling, and if your offer is even going to be like a success. And you're going through this extremely extensive and expensive process. So everyone listen to auto. Don't do that. That's not one of the first things that you need to do as an online business. I've actually, I don't do this anymore, but when I first started my own law firm, I registered or applied, you know, helped my clients register several trademarks that by the time we got the certificate, they were no longer using the brand. Yep. And so, and that's crushing for, for them, for me, you know, it's such a waste. So now we want to make sure that you're going to get an ROI if you are putting that much money. And frankly, in the beginning, you absolutely don't even need to worry about it. Yeah. And just so everyone knows who hasn't been through that process, can you explain it just a little bit so they understand how extensive and expensive it can be? Yes. So the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office is where most people register their trademarks. You can also do it at the state level, but most people don't because that's limited just to that state. So Mm -hmm. we're normally wanting our national protection. You file an application. It seems pretty straightforward. Honestly, you pick you tell them how you're using your trademark, like what products or services you're selling. You send, you give them some examples of how you're using your trademark and you hit submit. You, it's an online application, but there are pretty steep filing fees. So even if you don't hire a lawyer, you're DIYing this. It is now $350 per class. So that's like per category of products and services. Most of our clients file in two or three classes. So you're looking at like almost a thousand dollars just in filing fees. Mm-hmm. And if you mess up, you do not get that back. So that's step one. You file your application. It sits on an attorney's desk at the USPTO for nine to 12 months. That's the turnaround time right now. Like nothing happens. Just sits there for almost a year. And then the attorney's job is basically to deny your application. So that's their whole job. (laughs) And there's actually a good reason. The reason we have trademarks in the United States is really to protect consumers So I like to give like the Coke example. Like if I go to the grocery store and I want a bottle of Coke and I end up with a bottle of Pepsi, I'm going to be really annoyed. I do not care for Pepsi. I'm a Southerner. We like our Coke. So think about all the ways that I can make sure when I'm shopping that I'm getting Coke. It's the name. It's the scripty font. All of that is a registered trademark. It's the shape of the bottle even. That's called trade dress. You know, it's all the different indicators that it's that that's a product coming from the Coca-Cola company. That's why we have trademarks. So when the USPTO gives you a trademark, they're basically giving you, they call it a limited monopoly. So you're the only one who can use that brand or that font or that bottle shape because it's meant to indicate that it comes from your company. So that's excluding a lot of people. So the trademark office is pretty picky about who it will give that monopoly to. And especially if you are just an individual filing on your own, they really look at your application carefully. I will tell you, there is definitely a double standard. Like the the big companies get a different look than the little guys. So it's very hard to get your trademark approved and lots of trademarks are not even protectable. I'm not going to go down that road, but if you have like generic or descriptive words in your trademark, like 
how to grow better irises. Like you probably aren't going to be able to register that trademark. Right. So there's just, and there's a lot of mistakes that you can make without knowing better. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a complicated process and it is not for the, I, I always say if, if you have a brand that is valuable enough to be worth the filing fees, like just save a little extra until you can afford to work with an attorney yep. to make sure you do it the right way. And even in once they say it's denied, then if you're working with an attorney, then attorney has to go back and like give them reasons why it should yes. be accepted. So on top of the we file a legal brief. Yes. I always yes. say a budget an additional three to five thousand dollars on top of the initial fees. Yes. So it can yes. easily be five to ten thousand dollars in legal yeah. fees. Like that's not unusual. Yes. Yeah. And I wanted to put that out there because I'm Yes, like, no, I appreciate that. That's a thousand dollars. No. And then once you get your certificate, which I don't know if you can see mine behind me. Oh, I think I moved it. I have one for my podcast name. You get the privilege of enforcing your trademark. So if you do not send cease and desist letters, and if you're not watching to make sure that other people aren't using your trademark, you will lose your rights. It's just like, congratulations. Now you get to go spend more money. It makes a lot of sense for a business that has a really strong brand. And that's how people find them. But it does not make sense for a lot of our like more personal brands. Yes. Okay. Perfect. Thank you for walking me through that. Cause I think there is, like you said, you got 75 questions about it. So let's, it's yes. something we definitely it's need. It's a to hot cover. topic for sure. Yes. One of the most important things that you can do as an online business owner is make sure that you are legally protected. Trust me, as much as you don't want to bother with your terms and conditions and contracts and privacy policies, these things are super important. In fact, about a year into selling online courses, I made a huge legal mistake that cost me more than $50,000. Yes, as much as we don't want to think about the legal stuff, if you don't have it in place, it can cost you tens of thousands of dollars. Now, if you want help protecting your business legally, head to awbfirm.com. Autumn Whitboyd is the attorney for online businesses, and she has tons of templates to help make sure that you are protected from affiliate and referral program agreements to podcast sponsorship agreements to contract templates and terms and conditions. She has it all and you can go get it right now by going to awbfirm.com. I also have a special coupon code just for my audience. If you use the code Anna K, you'll get 20% off your purchase. Again, that's awbfirm.com. Use the coupon code Anna K and you'll get 20% off your purchase. So other, let's say, not quite as expensive fees, but something that can be extremely costly for online businesses are guarantees and refunds. My own experience have dealt with this. <laughs> do you want to tell your, do you, are you comfortable telling your story? Yeah, you sure. That's fine. So I actually recently, if you guys are listening, going back to, I had a podcast episode about like the things that I've learned over the running our Advise 3 Insider Pro program for the last five years. And one of them, I shared this story, which was we offer a 30-day guarantee and it does involve like you have to actually do some work. You have to submit things to prove that you have actually tried the program before getting your refund. And 
we definitely do talk about this. You know, we say that very specifically in our webinars and on our sales pages, because even though we had those things in place, we did at one point have a student who was, this was years ago, like, you know, probably 2019, a student who was not super happy. They basically wrote us an email, like a pretty threatening email, you know, of like, I'm going to go to your attorney general, blah, 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 all those things. Mm-hmm. And at the point, at the time, I was just kind of like, you know, it's, it's one person, like, it's fine. Let's just refund our money and we'll move on. Well, then what happened was then the student shared. Oh, us. no. I was about to say it spreads like wildfire. Right. Like what we literally it's ended the up worst. Doing, giving like $50,000 in refunds. And because we were like, well, we can't give it to one person. Right. And yeah. literally these other students were basically like, Popping and pasting like yeah. verbatim of what oh, she I'm said. so sorry, Anna. Yes. You know what? It was it was a learning lesson. We learned it. Yeah. And <laughs> I will tell you, you are not alone. Yeah. I have a, we have a client that we've been working on a very similar issue for over a year. Yes. And we're yes. just finally wrapping up the last week. It's yeah. really painful. And now I'm to the point where I'm like, you threat that's fine. You threaten me, you can put stuff <laughs> into the attorney general. I have a legal team now. I'm ready for it. You don't scare me anymore. <laughs> We also do not like make any like we are stick to our guns like no, basically no matter what you have to submit this information because we're not going to go through that again. So that is why having and not just having a refund policy, but actually sticking to it. Yeah. Extremely important. So for those who offer like refunds and guarantees, what are the big things that we need to know so that my audience doesn't? have to, you know, hand out $50,000 in refunds. Yes. Okay. So a couple of things. Number one, no one is talking about this. There are actually federal regulations around some of the wording that's really common around guarantees. So if you use like money back guarantee, some of those kinds of words, there are specific requirements about what you have to disclose basically on the front end, what you have to tell people, like if you have one like yours, which is very common, like a show your work. Yeah, you have to basically lay all that out at the beginning. You can't just say money back guarantee and then like, ha ha, it's money back, but only if you do these 19 steps, which is again, very common. So I just caution people to check that out. There's really helpful. The Federal Trade Commission has really helpful like business guides that are in plain English. They're very easy to read that will help you figure out how to comply with that. But I will say if that's a big part of your business and you're at the level where you could be potentially faced with a lot of refunds, like that's, this is not beginner stuff, this is like get a legal team to make sure you're in compliance because what you don't want is somebody threatens to go to the attorney general and you're like, oh, shoot, I'm actually like really out of compliance with a lot of these things because I didn't know any better. So you want to like have all your stuff in order so that you can kind of stick to your guns. So that's one thing. Make sure that you are your marketing is compliant. And then the other thing is exactly what you said, like this client that we worked with to and I'm just talking very generally, I'm not sharing attorney client privilege. But And she is not alone. So this is kind of almost like a composite. But they said to us like, well, we need to tighten up our contract or we need to, you know, get more legally solid. But just like you said, their contract didn't require them to give refunds. They decided to be nicer than their contract required. And since they didn't hold that boundary, then other people started taking advantage of it. So it is the hard answer to say you have to say no because people are going to be mean. They're going to lose their minds. They're going to, there will be a lot of drama. Yes. So just kind of prepare for it. Yes. But 
you're going, you're opening the door to a lot more drama if you don't hold that boundary. So yeah. that is the hardest part. It is really not legal. That's just like, you've got to kind of pull on your big business panties and do the hard thing. Yeah. And I will say adding on to that, like we definitely like we have, we, there's a line in the sand and we do not cross it for basically any reason. We've not crashed it since that incident. Cause I was like, we're not dealing with that again, yeah. but we've definitely had like some crazy you know, emails. We have, you know, we've been had people send things to the Better Business Bureau because they don't get their refund. We've had bad reviews. And I'm like, that is just, I have come to the conclusion. I'm like, that is just part of doing business. Yeah. Right. Like, I'm like, I can't make everyone happy and also run a successful business. Right. Right. And the larger you get, even if your disappointment rate is like 0.01%, like that's still not zero. You're never going to get it to zero. No. You and cannot then, please everyone. requests for our guarantee, it's, I mean, it's super low, like 3%, 2%, you know, but it's that still, it's always the loudest people in the yes. room, you know, who you get to sleep over it. Yes. It's and, awful. Yes. And so. I mean, the other option is, you know, a guarantee is really a marketing tool. Mm-hmm. to give people confidence before they buy that they can try it out. And if it doesn't work out, you know, it takes a lot of the risk off of them. Talked about risk. It takes the risk off of them and puts it onto you, the business owner, to really yep. knock their socks off and do a great job. But you don't have to offer a guarantee. Like lots of people don't. And we've also dealt with a lot of refund requests where like there was no guarantee and the contract said no refunds. People are like, well, you didn't do what I expected. And it's like, that's that's buyer's remorse. Like I I can't help you there. I know. As long as I delivered what I promised and I haven't yep. breached the contract, like you, 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 you don't get to get a refund just because you didn't like it. Right. I always give the example of like, if you, if someone buys a gym membership and then they don't use the gym, <laughs> like, do you think you don't get a refund? Are, and they, go, <laughs> people are walking in being like, I need a refund because I didn't use your gym. It's like, no, first of all, if anyone walked into a gym and said that, the people were going to think that they were nuts. Laugh at them. Yes. And second, it's like, there's no way in hell a gym would ever refund a customer their money because they didn't use the facilities. (laughs) So, So, I mean, you've got to figure out, I talk a lot with my clients and we are very values driven here at my firm. You've got to decide what your values are, like what's important to you as a business, what your culture is. And so people handle these refund situations differently. But I will say the longer people are in business, typically the tougher they get because they, you know, they see some of these negative outcomes. Well, and it's because I, I mean, it's unfortunate, but it's like once you deal with one kind of bad egg, then as much as it's not like I, I want to be a mean person right. or anything, but it's also like I need to be a fair person. Yeah. And I can't give one person, you know, treat them differently than the next person. So, right. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I will say, hey, just kind of following on that, um, we look at we review a lot of contracts that our clients are asked to sign or, you know, if a client's worked with another lawyer or they've written their own contract. And I would say at least half, if not more, just don't address refunds at all. So again, if you take nothing from this, just make sure whatever your refund policy is, you know, you have one, even if it's no refunds, make sure that that is in your contract so that, you know, if a question comes up later, you can point to it and say, you know, here it is, you agreed to it. So what other big things do we need to know as online business owners to make sure that like legally we are covered and we don't need to lose sleep at night over our worries about things? Yes. So the AWB firm, we work mostly with 
course creators like you and coaches. Uh, and so typically their intellectual property, like their program or their curriculum, mm-hmm. all of their materials, that's like the core of their business. That's how they make money. And so protecting that is really, really important. And so we can register those with the copyright office. That is one step in the process. You're going to get tired of hearing me say this, but we also put a lot of protections in their contracts mm-hmm. uh, because suing for copyright infringement is very expensive and difficult. Mm-hmm. But suing for breach of contract is much easier. So Ooh. we sometimes will build in some of those protections right into the contract. And I find we work on a lot of cease and desist matters and, you know, disputes. Yep. And it's almost never a total stranger who is a copycat. It is almost always either a former student or customer. It's maybe somebody who is a contractor for you. So they were in the business. Maybe they were, you know, a contract coach or, you know, an instructor for you or a guest coach. Or sometimes it's a team member and and they worked with you for a while and then they, you know, moved on and now they think they knew everything and they're going to do their own thing. So we can put a lot of protections in contracts that kind of put guardrails around what those people can and can't do with your intellectual property. And those are, like I said, just so much easier to actually enforce than having to try and prove copyright infringement. Have you, from like an IP standpoint, have you had anyone coming to you or talking to you about kind of AI at all and using that in their business? A little bit. Yeah. It's so new that we haven't really, I feel like it's in its infancy. Like all I've gotten is questions, but I haven't really seen any problems yet. I'm sure they are coming. Yes. Although I will say it is interesting. Like I have started reading some things and I'm like, that sentence structure is weird. I think that was AI created. And so I have heard people like starting to use AI checkers even for their own team members to see like, are they really doing this work? Or like for contractors that they've hired? Because all AI does, I don't know if you know this, we mentioned our mutual friend, Corinne Crabtree, before we started. Her husband, Chris, is also one of my buddies. He's super smart and he's an IT geek. So he was explaining this to me when I saw him last week. All AI does is it's like a predictive algorithm. So it has all of this input, you know, zillions and zillions of documents. And if you give it a prompt, it's going to try and look for similar series of words. And it's just trying to figure out, okay, if I have these three words, what's the next word that is the most likely? It's not that it makes the most sense. It's just like in all of the other documents I have scanned, Mm -hmm. what makes the most sense? And so that's why you sometimes read these things and you're like, that doesn't even really make sense because it's not smart. It's literally just like, what is the most likely next word? Right. So there was actually recently a legal case where a lawyer submitted a brief, like an argument to the court that was generated by AI and it had fake cases in it. So a normal legal case would be like Smith v. Jones, like 33 F 3rd 92, yeah. like Southwest 2nd, whatever, whatever the date. It's like a string of letters and words. Yeah. And it's not a sentence structure. It's just like kind of nonsense. It's the party's names and all of that, the court name. Yeah. And it had fake cases because the AI, it doesn't know, it can't research cases. It's not on like Lexis or Westlaw. It is literally just pulling words. It's like, you know, word salad. So it's crazy. I think we're going to start to see more of that stuff. Uh, So in the employment context, our firm, I'm not an employment lawyer, but we do a lot of employment law. We have two employment lawyers. So I think we're going to start seeing some of that kind of stuff. Like, can I fire this person? I think they're not really doing their job. I think they're just using AI. But I do, I've gotten a lot of questions in the intellectual property area. And again, it's so new. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of kind of hypothesis about it. Right. But one of the big points in the the strike that's happening right now with the Screenwriters Guild is that 
they want to basically forbid any of the studios to you. Like if you are working with union union screenwriters, that they are not allowed to use AI. Wow. Because they want to protect like their creative work. And it's just, I think it's really interesting. I think we're going to see. And like, how do you enforce that as a contractual provision? Like, how do you check? I don't know. It's wild. It's I even think that it was like music, you know, music. Yes. Yes. Being created like AI is basically like combining like 10 different songs to create a new song. Yeah. Yeah. Create a song in the style of Drake. Like, yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Wild. It's it's a wild time. What yes. time for sure. Yeah. But I mean, like, are they infringing a copyright on another song? Like the copyright test is whether it sounds the same, basically. Like, are they substantially right. similar? And these, they're usually not. So I don't know. It's, it's going to be interesting. Super interesting. Yeah. Okay. I, because I'm a married to an attorney, I feel like I could geek out on legal stuff all day, but not everyone else feels that's all right. <laughs> so if someone's interested in working with you, to help get their business set up, protected, you know, where it needs to be. How can they work with you? Like, what are the different ways they can work with you and where can they find you? Yeah. So the best place to start, especially if you're a newer business, is our podcast, which is called the Legal Roadmap Podcast. And I would start with the first 12 episodes, which I really created almost as like the course I was too lazy to create. (laughs) They're, They're really, really good. It's kind of all the basics that you need to know as you're starting a creative or online business. So that's a great place to start. The next step would be if you don't have contracts for your business, we sell affordable, customizable contract templates on our website. And that's just my initials, AWB and then the word firm, awbfirm.com. So you can shop. We have pretty much any, you know, we use our own templates. So anything we do something a couple of times, we're like, oh, we need to make a template for that. So pretty much any contract that you could need for an online business we have in our shop. And then the next step is I would say if you're starting to get successful, you've been in business a couple of years, you're you know, maybe 250 to 500,000 annual revenue and you're growing, you're excited, you want to keep growing. That is kind of our sweet spot for working one-on-one with clients. So we start by doing a legal audit of their whole business, not like a tax audit, but we, <laughs> we look at their whole business and we kind of poke holes in it and see what what's going great. We love to give gold stars and then, you know, what are maybe some areas that need a little more protection. And then we work with them on a project to get to know them. So that is our beginning of how we love to work with clients and get to know them a little bit before we just dive in to the legal projects. Awesome. Well, this was so informative. Thank you, Autumn. I think it'll clear up a lot of questions that our audience has for their online business. So guys, go find Autumn. Go listen to her podcast. And then if you still have questions, definitely make sure to reach out with her. On her- Yeah, I'm on Instagram, Facebook, AWB Farm, pretty much everywhere. I love to chat in DMs. So feel awesome. free to reach out. Perfect. And when do you get a chance? Go to Chattanooga. Yes. Beautiful. Super cool. Yes. Yes. All right. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Anna. Hey there, friend. If you enjoyed today's episode, then you definitely need to check out the Powered by Passive Academy. It is my program that teaches you how to make passive income with your own online course, membership, or coaching program. You can learn more about it at poweredbypassiveacademy.com slash learn more. Or if you're ready to enroll today, you can go to poweredbypassiveacademy.com and I'll see you inside the program.